Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now hey everybody just real quick before the show started uh this is steve and i just wanted to let you know for all the latest information on our podcast Hit us up on Twitter at E-I-L-F Movies. That's everything I learned from movies. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. If you're looking for incredible art or maybe gifts for an upcoming uh, birthday or Father's Day, Mother's Day, anything like that, Christmas, uh, you can check out Izzy's art at untidyvenus.etsy.com. You can also find us on all the uh, podcatchers like Podbean, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts or iTunes, whatever they're calling it these days, Podcast Addict, uh, basically... Google us, you'll find us, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. All right, on with the show. Everything I learned from movies With a one last plot holes a gratuitous It's time to get busy with your friend Stephen Gary Goddard has been a writer and director of some of my favorite shows as a child including Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future and Masters of the Universe. However, since then, he's gone into a world that may be even more magical, producing, directing, and designing some of the biggest theme park attractions in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Goddard was kind enough to join us on Everything I Learned from Movies. Hello, Mr. Goddard? Oh, hello? Oh, yes, hello. Uh, yeah, uh, here we are. Um, all right, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. Oh, okay, there we go. Sorry, my, I guess my speaker had been turned off. Sorry. <laughs> ah, excellent. How are you doing today, sir? Pretty good. Excellent, excellent. Well, uh, I'm Steve, and I'm here with my wife, Izzy. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Lizzie, with it, Sorry? Lizzie? Izzy, yes. Thank you so okay. much for coming on. My pleasure. Excellent. And Mr. Goddard, of course, we're, uh, we're with the podcast uh, Everything I Learned from Movies. Um, if I guess first off, uh, if you'd just like to let us know like, where you grew up, uh, what your family life was like, and kind of how you got into to entertainment and stuff. Well, uh, yeah, I grew up in Santa Barbara. I did theater there, and uh, I made a couple little movies in high school. You know, it was really tough back then because it was only 8mm and there was no sound sync. But I did do a... 16 millimeter sound sync film in my senior year of high school a short that uh timothy bottoms starred in because tim went to high school with me uh, he was a year older than me and um did that went to cal arts california Institute of the arts majored in film and theater there and uh, then before right before i graduated uh, about two months before graduation uh, my fourth year there uh disney uh, hired me in live entertainment division to go to florida and uh, to co-direct a show there that was only supposed to run one summer called Hoop-de-Doo, the Wild West Dinner Review. Mm-hmm. And um, it became such a hit, they kept me on. They sent the other college kids home, 
because they all had to go back to college. And then I stayed on and cast and directed the professional cast that stayed on. And that show is still going on today. It's it's a dinner show. It's called Hoopty Doo at Walt Disney World. And it's uh, their number one uh, dinner show, three shows a night, seven days a week. So if you're ever in Florida, go see Hoopty Doo. Um, <laughs> and then uh, Disney had me do a few other things. Uh, then I came back to Imagineering uh, here in, uh, in Glendale, California. I was an Imagineer and uh, worked on... Um, what became uh, Disneyland Japan or Tokyo Disneyland and uh, some of the uh, very initial conceptual planning work on uh, Epcot and the World Showcase, which is kind of where I got into the whole theme park design thing. And uh, while I was working on Imagineering, I was working on some screenplays and I sold one to Paramount Studios, so I left Disney to go pursue uh, writing screenplays. It led to directing. I wrote uh, Tarzan the Ape Man with Bo Derek went to the Seychelles Islands with Bo and John Derrick to uh, do a few drafts of the script there for MGM Pictures. And then um, uh, <clears throat> I came back and was work, working on a few other um, scripts. And then this opportunity came up to the Masters of the Universe. I uh, met with Ed Pressman, and uh, he thought I was I could do it. He liked, I directed the Conan show, the live Conan show at Universal Studios Tour, and a couple other things. And he was blown away by that and thought, okay, this is the guy. And that's kind of very quick version of what took me from uh, growing up in Santa Barbara to CalArts to Disney World to Imagineering to uh, doing motion picture screenplays and then uh, Masters of the Universe. Excellent. Well, I, I guess like growing up there in Santa Barbara, were there uh, any particular idols that you had or um, I don't know if it was just kind of a hobby that grew or? Uh, I had a lot of different idols, but I guess the three the three main ones, it's kind of interesting because it was, uh, it was, uh, uh, Gene Kelly, Walt Disney, and Errol Flynn, and then by the time I got into high school, you can add Stanley Kubrick to the mix. Uh, mm-hmm. Suddenly, I was really into Stanley Kubrick by my, I don't know, and Bob Fosse, Bob Fosse from the stage, and Kubrick from the movies, but also William Wyler and others. I was really getting into movies then. So, uh, but I think you can see a lot of my work, a lot of uh, the influence of the Errol Flynn movies and the Gene Kelly movies, because I love musicals too, and uh, and then of course Disney and all of that. So, and then as I got older, Spielberg, Cameron, you know, all of the the normal ones that you would associate with those of us that grow up, you know, loving fantasy pictures and action films. But I love all movies. I love a good love story, a good comedy, action, uh, sci-fi, fantasy. I love all of it. Excellent, excellent. And you mentioned that you were a writer on uh, Tarzan the Ape Man. Uh, and I'm sorry, where did you say that was shot? With uh... Uh, the Seychelles Islands for MGM Pictures. John Derrick directed it, and Bo Derrick starred. Yeah, Richard Harris and uh, right. Miles yep. O'Keefe was the the Tarzan that one. <laughs> yep, that's right. Yep. It's, uh, I uh, I wound up I, I share a credit a credit a writing credit with Tom Rowe, but I never actually met Tom Rowe. He had done a couple drafts before me, and the, the Derricks weren't happy, and they brought me a, a, a dialogue polish. And so I was halfway through the dialogue polish because uh, I was working on another thing with them called Never Neverland, which was a kind of a post Holocaust, uh, actually post apocalypse um, uh, fantasy epic adventure with Bo as a kind of a Joan of Arc character. That's a whole other story. Mm-hmm. Marvel had a title called Dazzler, but they didn't have a story or a character yet. And Bo was the biggest box office star in the world at the time because of Ten, and they said we want you to do. Dazzler, but we don't know what Dazzler is, and they had met me, and they knew I knew fantasy, and they said, well, what do you think? And I said, I came back with a pitch and said, well, um, 
I wouldn't make her a superhero. I my idea is Dazzler is a sword, a very well, very uh, special sword in a you know post-apocalypse time. It's a high-tech sword of some kind that has these. And she becomes a Joan of Arc character. She re, she unites all the people against the overlords that ruin the world. And he liked it. And I started writing that. And halfway through that, the Tarzan thing came up with MGM, and he said, "We want you to do a, dollar, uh, a dialogue polish." And I said, okay, and halfway through that, they said, we like what you're doing. We don't like what it's based on. We want you to do a complete rewrite. We want you to come with us to the Seychelles Islands. We're going to scout locations for two or three weeks. So I went to Seychelles and lived in a home there with Bo and John Derrick. And we worked on a script every day. And I went out at night to little restaurants and stuff. Seychelles was not very developed at the time. Now it's a super resort with yeah. Ritz-Carlton's and you know, Mandarin Orientals. But back then a couple western hotels and a couple asian hotels and that was it oh very nice and of course after uh, tarzan the ape man uh you, you were involved with one of my favorite shows as a kid even though only last year was captain power and the soldiers of the future uh, yes i created that and produced that uh, uh with Mattel toys um and uh that was uh we were working on that while i was directing masters of the universe i think oh, okay so if it was like correctly. like like concurrently at the same time uh, almost, yeah. I think uh, I, I'd already been doing some consulting with Mattel on some projects they were doing, and then we pitched Captain Power, and they loved it. And somewhere in that, I can't remember now which came first, if it was Captain Power or Masters of the Universe, but but kind of all in that same little realm because Masters came out in '87, yeah, that's right? right, and '88 Captain Power came out. So uh, yeah. yeah, those were overlapping. And then Skeleton Warriors, the animated show on CBS, came another couple of years later after that. Yeah, it was like ninety four. Yeah, how uh, so? Like with Masters of the Universe, was it more like um, did, did they have you like write the script from scratch, or was it more like they had a loose idea and you kind of went around? No, with Masters of the Universe. Ed Pressman had the script written by David O'Dell, and I was brought in as a director, and I worked with him to shape the material, and then we did several rewrites, and then they brought in uh, Steve Tolkien to do a draft as well, and I worked with him. Um, and uh, I, I wound up writing parts of it, but uh, not credited. Um, and uh, a lot of the, the, like the Air Centurions I wrote, and the monologue at the end, the whole build up to the end, and Frank's monologue, and all that stuff for things. Like that, yeah. Because it, uh, the drafts that, that, that uh, the drafts that we had, the one thing that was missing was there was no kind of, you know, um, it wasn't building to a big moment. So we tried to set up that. When I got it, it started in our present time. And a wounded uh, He-Man uh, falls under the back porch of of the character Courtney played. So you never actually see Eternia. Oh. So I tried to convince them to spend a little money to book in the picture with Eternia on both ends, and so that it had more of an epic quality. And uh, but because it was being done for a budget, the concept was that it's a fish out of water story. It's He-Man and a few of them that wind up on Earth, and. Uh, so what I try to say is I think we have to start this on attorney with a kind of an epic feeling and we got to finish on attorney. And then, the, and then the, the, you know, and they weren't going to do it, but I convinced them. I had the idea of building one gigantic set. I said, look, we'll build one big set. We'll shoot the entire opening there. We'll shoot the entire closing there just to save you money in the long run because about half our shooting schedule will be on the sound stage down and not on locations. So I was able to justify the cost of that massive set. And, and we did. We used it quite a bit. So that worked out well. 
Nice. And yeah, that was towards the, uh, the I guess, the final days of uh, Canon Films and whatnot. Uh, what, what was that environment like, working with uh, the producers? And... Uh, every day was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we were actually, uh, on three different occasions, the crew was waiting for me when I got to the set. And they were like, we're not working today because our checks didn't come through. And, oh, man. Uh, I was like, oh, okay, well, that would be a waste of the day. And I would get Elliot there, and I'd say, okay, Elliot's going to go to Canon. And, you know, shouldn't we just do the day while we're here, guys? I mean, you're here. Let's do it. Elliot will get the money. If he doesn't get the money, then okay, I guess. But let's, I mean, we're here. And, you know, the guys were cool. You hear the union guys sometimes are really rough and difficult. But they were all like, yeah, we're here. Let's, let's, let's do it. And we'd shoot it, and then... Somehow, Elliot would get back, and he'd, he'd gotten the payroll covered, so everybody was fine. But it was that bad. Three occasions when, when they hadn't got, <laughs> they had not got their checks, they were all going to walk the crew. Oh man! Uh, and then you know, just the usual kinds of things you face in a movie. Just uh, you know, you, you don't have what you need, and so you got to improvise. We're supposed to have a thirty-foot crane, and we have a you know. 18-foot train instead, and you may have this instead of that, and that instead of this, and, and you have to be able to think on your feet and still get through the day and get your shots and make the thing happen. But I would say, uh, you know, as a first-time director, that is a movie that has everything in it. It has uh, effect shots, it has opticals, it has makeup, it has contact lenses, it has animals, costumes, mm. whatever, everything. Yeah. It's all in that, it's a textbook for having to work in every single medium to kind of bring the thing to life. So every day was a challenge. Excellent. Well, and what was it like working with, uh, you mentioned Frank Langella, but also like Dolph Lundgren, where he was uh, very young in his career as well. Well, Frank was great, and I really pushed hard for Frank. I, I felt that uh, we needed someone at the, you know, I, I, I actually knew Jack Kirby when, you know, when I was much younger. When he moved to Thousand Oaks from New York, I kind of, got his phone number in the, in the phone book and called him and went over to visit him when I was like 17 and, and I remember Jack said a lot of things but one of the things he said was you know you can't have a great hero unless you have a great villain the villain has to be stronger than the hero otherwise there's nothing for the hero to fight against and, yeah. and, and you, there's no story because yeah of course you beat him because he's bigger and stronger so you want to have a villain that is really strong and powerful so I wanted a villain that would uh, be much more than just the cartoon version of it ah oh, he man <laughs> Get him! Get him! You know, I, I wanted it to be something much more than that. And to give it a kind of a, a quality of, of, of some of the great villains, and, and, uh, and even I would say the great Jack Kirby villains, like Dr. Dim and like Magneto, you know, the yeah. noble villain who thinks he's doing the right thing and is very convinced of what he's doing. So um, that was a pitch that got Frank involved, and, and Frank and I collaborated on a lot of the dialogue and a lot of the stuff, and he was very involved in every single decision, right down to the cape and the costume and everything. Um, and I think he did a brilliant job. And I also knew I needed um, Frank to kind of hold the picture together because Dolph was new. Dolph was not an experienced actor, and uh, and uh, I felt I needed someone to really um, keep your attention and keep the project moving forward, have a powerful driving force, and Frank was that. And, and more than ever, as I've looked at it once in a while, as the years have gone by, he is that force. He really does drive the picture. Absolutely, yeah, mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah, yeah. Some of the scenes, like he has the little monologues and stuff, and it's like, oh wow, this 
this this is actually a decent movie and, and you know these the scenes and stuff like like i i love it but you know there's obviously like a little little campiness to it and stuff too just uh it, yeah. it's, it's more nostalgia for me I, I was you know what six years old when it came out so i had like the posters on the wall and all that but <laughs> but yeah there's actual like gravitas and stuff when frank langella's on the screen <laughs> yeah excellent yeah well that's what i wanted i was thinking of uh, brando and superman you know and, and to me in the original richard donner superman movie I much prefer the first half of the movie, all the Krypton stuff, when they treated it very seriously. When it got to, I mean, it was okay when they got to um, the Earth and Gene Hackman, but everyone was kind of, you know, playing a little big. But the script that I got originally uh, from David was more in that tone, more in the tone of the tongue-in-cheek kind of 80s, you know, thing. So I guess I kind of looked at Superman, the Donner, Richard Donner Superman as a model, that, that if we can ground this thing and give it a little dramatic reality, then, then that, that should hopefully we'll give some gravitas to it so when we get to earth and we play it more for a little bit of laughs and stuff sometimes that people will still uh, you know take the movie seriously and not just i didn't i didn't want this to be another super mario just a another movie based on a, on a toy that is uh you know kind of <laughs> has no center and is just kind of I don't want to say lame because I don't want to put down someone else's movie, but what I mean is, is there is no gravitas, there's no center to it, and um, I, I wanted this to have that. So those are most of the choices that I brought to it. The, the, the book ending of Eternia, bringing Frank in, um, casting Meg as Eva Lynn, who uh, yeah. just nails it, and, uh, and, uh, and then, you know, Courtney and Robbie, who uh, had a kind of an innocence to them, which I think was important, too, to the to the story uh, the way again from the original script the way it was written uh, that that was inherent in what I was given well then the other uh, Mattel property uh, again Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future uh, actually our first interview on this podcast was uh, Sven Thorson who played Tank in the series oh uh, yeah yeah how, <laughs> how 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 was that shoot I mean it was uh, what 22 episodes and it was uh, shot up in Canada is that right Yep, it was shot in Canada and Toronto, and uh, it was crazy. There was uh, we were shooting a lot of footage, and we were, you know, we were pushing the technology on on two levels. We were not only the first live action series to try and use CGI in a weekly series. We also had to add this interactive technology that had never been tested or tried before. So uh, it was a monumental challenge, and um, uh, we were working long days and long nights to do it and to meet this incredible deadline that we had to broadcast to send out the first two episodes by satellite to all of the stations around the world. We made it. It was a, it was a, <laughs> it was a real race to the finish line to get those and the next two and the next two out. But after the first six or eight episodes, uh, the schedule did get to be a little more regular. But man, it was, it was a killer. Uh, we were, we were really um, pressed to you know, bring the live action together with the CG to push the CG firm. You know, that CG firm was doing stuff no CG firm had done up to that point in time, and certainly not on a weekly television schedule. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, so I'm sorry, like, every two episodes, like, they were needing it every, like, what was it like, the time frame, like, within a week or two, or what kind of time frame? Yeah, once we got the first two out, it was another two every two weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's we were ahead of it, but, but it's the, you, the, you can imagine the post-production on a show like that is intense it's it's all of the audio cues all the effects all the stuff all the music all the cg stuff all this all the cg has to go in first all it's got to go in your composers are working on the scoring 
while the uh, sound guys are putting in all the different effects and stuff, and then you got to get in there, you got to mix it all, color balance, you got to do all that stuff, and you got to get it, and then you got to put this layer in for the uh, the gaming thing too. You got to put an extra layer of the signal that's required for all of the gaming shots. So it was it was a nightmare, but you know that's I guess when you're breaking new ground, that's what you do. Yeah, and have and being the you know creator and everything, have you ever? Uh, considered like trying to look into like a reboot and like now the technology's a little better so we a lot quicker turnaround in that aspect or oh yeah yeah we've, we've been working on that for about three years and i think we're getting close finally i mean i've said that before but it does look like uh that that may actually happen fingers crossed yes uh I'll, you'll be one of the first to know if it happens How about that? I, I, actually i i've got like twitter alerts and stuff or you know <laughs> google <laughs> alerts for that kind of stuff so i remember i think it was yeah like yeah two or three years ago there was the was it phoenix rising or um right yeah. well we were very close to getting that done in canada and the last minute one of the uh, financing companies pulled out so we had to go back to square one but uh we're we're you know, knock on wood, we're very close right now, we think, to uh, making something happen. Hopefully, maybe even an announcement in the next, if not by the end of the year, maybe the first part of next year. Excellent. Well, yeah, I just remember, like, like even as a kid, just, like, the, the storylines and stuff were just, I mean... It, you know, used to like G.I. Joe and stuff where it's basically like, oh, there's bad guys. Let's shoot them. OK, that's the end of the episode. And, you know, that kind of thing. But this one had more of a more, more like the human aspect and like depth it, and character. Yeah. yeah. Like I've been, you know, watched them recently and they're they really hold up. It's, it's quite yeah, amazing. Do. Yeah. I think all of our stories were meant to be um, stories about people, about characters, not just our lead characters, but the characters that would go in and out, whether good or bad. And uh, that was important to all of us to make a show that that we would want to watch, not just, you know, my original idea when I pitched it to Mattel was we're going to do a live action show like, because when I was a kid, I grew up on shows like Sky King and, uh, uh, you know, The Circus Boy and um, and um, My Friend Flicker, live action shows and also one or two sci-fi shows. And those were gone. Everything was animation. So I said, you know, why don't we bring back a live action hero and, uh, and we'll mix it with CG and the villain of these these creatures that we've created will be CG creatures and uh, I think kids will love it and, and but I also want to make a show that if adults were watching they would like it too yeah. I live by that Walt Disney adage you know someone a reporter once said you know you make all these movies for kids and he said I don't make movies for kids I make movies for the parents and I put things in it that I know the kids will like as well and so I, I think that's a, that's a good way to go yeah, it elevates absolutely. the material yeah, see, it's worked well for Pixar so far, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yeah. man. No kidding. <laughs> uh, and you also mentioned uh, you're the a creator of the Skeleton Warriors that was in the mid-'90s there for a season. Uh, how, how did that come about? Just, uh, is it ideas uh, you had over CBS the years? CBS was looking for a new show, and we had this idea uh, for Skeleton Warriors. Uh, I noticed that uh, my godson, who was like three or four years old, and I was noticing one time how he would react. Whenever he'd see a skeleton, he'd go, bad, bad, you know, bad. So I thought, wow, even at a young age, there's something in our DNA. We know that a skull or a skeleton is bad. So I thought there's something very, uh, you know, um, in our DNA about that, something that is, is, is so, what if we built a series around that, around skeleton warriors? And I remember even myself, you know, obviously, chasing the Argonauts. I yeah. saw that as a kid at a matinee. When those skeletons come out of the ground and fight Jason and runs, or you know, so so that triggered my memory of those things too. So that came about, and CBS liked the idea, and we and, and we pitched it, 
And that one, if you watch those again, you'll see that that uh, CG... Um, I really want to do the whole show in CG, but and we actually had a plan to do it. But uh, CBS took so long to approve it that we lost our window. There would be no time, so we had to go with more traditional animation. But I added that CG head at the very beginning, and I because I wanted to have something that would grab kids before they could change the channel from the, the last show. That's why it starts out with... These are the tales of the skeleton warriors. Bum, bum, and drop, dun, dun, <laughs> You know, just grab their attention. These are the tales of the skeleton warriors. That makes sense to me. And and, and what was it like, uh, I guess, compared to normally directing like live action and stuff with, you know, working with voice talents like uh, Tony Jay and uh, Kevin Michael Richardson and Jennifer Hale? Yep. And... Tony Jay did so many things for me over the years, not just Golden Warriors, tons of stuff. He had the most amazing voice, didn't yeah. he? It's just great. Yeah, yeah. For those for those who don't know, uh, Tony Jay's in everything. Um, I I always remember him as the. Um, Oh my gosh! On uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, he's the yep, 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 the priest, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, that that voice. <laughs> Tony J was was angry at me because I think I used him to do a promo to to sell Captain Power to Mattel, but then I didn't use him when we did the actual production. But I didn't really have a narrator in that one, you know. And and yeah. I remember he came to a session for us, and over the mic he goes, "Tony, yeah." I've got a bone to pick with you. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'll never forget that. I've got a bone to pick with you. Oh, okay, what is it? And then he said, well, I did this thing for you. Blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, Tony, we didn't, we didn't use a narrator on that show. Obviously, I would have, I would have counted you if we, we'd use a narrator, but we didn't, we didn't have one. I don't just narrate. And it's like, oh, okay, that's true too. Sorry. You know, but, but anyway, we get along. I, I, I we, we probably used him on, dozen different projects for theme parks and shows and stuff over the years he was one of our definite go-to guys 
Well, and um, you you founded Landmark Entertainment Group, uh, which yes. basically does things even more magical, possibly than movies and television. It's theme park attractions. Yeah. How- yeah, with uh, Terminator 2 3D and uh, the, the Spider-Man uh, Dark Ride, the Amazing Adventure Spider-Man. I think I'm always really push the state of the art, but also Caesar's Magical Empire at Los, in Las Vegas, Caesar's Palace. And, Jurassic Park, the ride, yeah, a ton of stuff actually over the years. The Star Trek attraction in Las Vegas was that was pretty fantastic. Actually. Oh yeah, down at the the Hilton, right? The Las Vegas Hilton. Yep. Nice. It was a beam up effect that got everybody, even the most seasoned professionals, could not figure out how we did that beam up thing. <laughs> wow, and and yeah, how does something like that, uh, uh, like what what's the I'm assuming it's something like uh, like Terminator 2 was a huge hit, so now we kind of want to write at Universal Studios, and then do they go to you for like the design of like every aspect of it, or is it something like they already have in mind? And well, each one is different, but always they come to us for concept and, and master plan to figure out what it is, and then uh, from there we go into show design, and from show design we go into production supervision, and then directing and and producing it on site. And some attractions like T2-3D, we did everything. We followed all the way through. Now, when I say that, it's not just us. As you know, it's thousands of people, and yeah. Universal has their own people, and we work in collaboration with them and all that kind of thing. So uh, everyone's different. On Spider-Man, we created the concept, and we created the basic uh, design and the plan, um, and we storyboarded the whole thing. We worked everything out, but then it really was mainly produced in-house that one. Um, in-house by Universal with a guy named Scott Trowbridge I think headed up the team um, Jurassic Park we designed it and scripted and we supervised it and we provided uh, art directors on site and we also did the soundtrack uh, and uh, so each project is on Star Trek we did everything the Star Trek attraction in Vegas it was everything except um, build the building but everything that went inside the building the entire attraction we did every, all of that um, on behalf of Paramount. So every attraction is different. Uh, depends upon, you know, the needs of the uh, studio or the client or the park. And uh, we work with them to come up with whatever the best uh, solution is for how to get it built and, and on. Nice. Is there a, one in particular that you're really proud of or that, like, ha- took a long time to develop? And Well, both the Spider-Man 3D ride and T2-3D were both big struggles on my part because nobody at Universal believed in them other than the top guy, Jay Stein, who backed me and, and would support me as long as I could keep proving that the ideas were sound, that they would work. But if it had been up to uh, the Universal executives there that were in charge of the parks and, and, and look in the internal design group, uh, they would have killed it. They didn't understand how the 3D would work in a ride. They didn't understand how it would work in a stage show. Uh, and so that was a struggle, but both were well worth it. You know, they kind of changed the industry. In fact, I'd say there's almost too many 3D attractions now. <laughs> <laughs> but back then, it was, it was a struggle. But so those of them in Macau, uh, we did two gigantic resorts there. One is called Galaxy, the Galaxy uh, Resort, and one is called Studio City Macau. And Studio City Macau has the world's first double Ferris wheel embedded into the architecture of the building about 46 stories up in the air. Oh, wow. It's pretty amazing. Um, so we're proud of those, and, and we're proud of uh, the Georgia Aquarium, uh, just a ton, tons of things. Um, the Forum Shops at Caesars Palace, if you've ever been there. Um, it's, a, it's a retail mall, but it's like 
You're in a theatricalized version of ancient Rome. There's a gigantic dome with the sky there and it turns from day to night. It's oh, pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's, that's amazing. And, and uh, I'm sorry, you mentioned the Georgia Aquarium. What what uh, what kind of setup is there? What, what did you do there? Uh, well, there we were picked out of five other five other firms. We were selected to be the uh, entertainment designer for everything inside. So we we created the overall concept for the aquarium and the staging of how it works and how people circulate through it and then what the concepts were for each of the different uh, areas, the cold water fish and the warm water fish and the tropical fish and, uh, you know, the local fish, you know, the uh, Georgia uh, fish. Uh, so the theming and overall activation of everything. And we also wound up playing the soundtrack for everything. We uh, recorded all original soundtrack music for the project as well. Yeah, so each project is different. God, you're making me feel old here. I'm walking down memory lane. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and sorry, I just I've been to Georgia Aquarium, and I just know that uh, it's the only one in North America with a whale shark. And so I'm like, is the whole design kind of centered around that attraction, or is that just a, another thing there? I'm just kind of curious. No, I, no, that was the world's biggest aquarium when it opened in 2005. I think it's still the third largest now, but I think two larger ones have opened in China, or maybe one in Japan and one in China. I can't remember now. But now, since then, we've designed three more aquariums that will be opening in China over the next few years. Um, mm -hmm. And one of them is really cool. Um, it's the, it'll be the biggest one in the world. It's The building is, I think, three or four football fields long. Oh, wow. um, it's massive because they're going to... Now, this isn't my choice. In fact, I tried to dissuade them, but because, uh, you know, I told them, I said, you know, orcas, you can't do this anymore in America, and even here in China, it's going to catch up with you. But, you know, we're just designers. We can only advise. But ultimately, they said, no, we're going to have orcas. And so there's a gigantic orca tank. But, but we recommended that uh, instead of doing a show where you make, if you're going to have orcas, instead of doing a show where you make them jump through hoops and make them do all these, you know, things that I feel are really, um, not demeaning, but I don't know. I said, why don't we, why don't we get with some worker experts? And why don't we work in their natural cycles and see what they do? And so, with working with them, we created this uh, wave machine because they, they like to jump those waves and stuff. Yeah. So there's a giant wave machine in this very deep pool. And now, now I, we're not following through on this, so I don't know. But this was the concept we left them with, which they said they were going to do. So the idea is to. By feeding them and by using the waves and by using uh, other techniques to make a show, but not a typical show. They're not choreographed and jumping through hoops and stuff. They're going. They, they do a lot of the normal things that they would do in the ocean. Um, they will. They will leap out. For instance, when you have the waves, they will. They will use those waves to kind of ride them and, and leap and things. So we're trying to do a more. Um, I guess you call it a slice of life in in the uh, lives of orcas instead of doing tricks, you know? Mm. So uh, anyway, this thing, the idea was he had a gigantic building that architects had designed. He didn't like that. We were doing another project for this particular client. He said, can you help us on this? We want to have something more exciting, more fantastic for the exterior. Da, da, da. So uh, we got involved, and uh, we got involved in some of the concepts for the shows and things and moved things around a little to make the building a little more interesting. But then we designed the building. We had three or four or five building designs. He still wasn't crazy about them. He said, I want to be iconic, I want to be world famous. I said, okay. So I suddenly had this idea. And so what we did was, I said, the trick here is instead of making it a building, of course it's a building, but it doesn't have to look like a building. So what I designed was what I would call the, the 
ocean version of a Star Trek. What Star Trek is for space. What is the ship that would go to the deepest, deepest, because, you know, right now we don't have that. What is, what is the ship that would go to the deepest, deepest parts of the ocean and be able to come up to the surface and maybe even go a, bit, a little bit above the surface so they can go anywhere in the oceans, anywhere it can withstand the pressures and everything. And it's designed to collect specimens along the way and to give them humane environments where they can exist while they're being studied or helped or, uh, or you know, being uh, uh, have the veterinarians be working to make them better when they're not healthy and all that kind of thing. So we designed a massive submarine, high-tech futuristic submarine that appears as though it's docked, and they happen to be docked right by the uh, China Sea. That's where the park is. Um, and what I said was, you should create a TV show that goes with this. You should be the SS Discovery or the SS whatever. Uh, and um, yeah, you can look it up. I think they've, they've released some artwork and construction pictures. Of the, um, the company is Chimelong, and they already have a theme park in China called, uh, that's very successful, called um, Ocean Kingdom. Oh, okay. And this is going to be the marine world or marine park or marine research something or other. But anyway, it's a gigantic submarine that seems to be docked there. And the whole idea was that you're boarding the submarine and uh, and seeing all the specimens of different... Um, uh, yeah, it's a little bit like a marine life version of, uh, of uh, um, silent running. But instead of biodomes, you have all these different chambers that have different sea creatures in them that are being, uh, you know, collected and, and cared for in this facility. Anyway, that's the story behind it. Yeah, and he loves it, and I really it, and uh, hopefully it will be as cool as the design was. Nice. And I'm sorry, where, where in China? You said it was on the South China Sea. Is it in, like, Sanya? Yeah, it's, uh, it's right across the border from, uh, it's right across the water from uh, Macau. Oh, okay. In an area called, um, it's where they just had the big typhoon, Han... Han, Han, oh, Han, Han, uh, Han, Han Chai or uh, Han, Han yeah, uh, yeah. I'll 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 look it up. <laughs> we'll we'll get it. We'll get a link on the website and everything. <laughs> but yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, and you said, yeah. and so you have you said you had two or three opening up in China here in the next year or two, or uh, you know. Yeah, one's yeah. opening. One is thirty minutes from Shanghai Disney. It's called uh, Polar Ocean World, and uh, that's going to open. They say it's going to open in November, but I see the aerial photography, and I'm not sure that I agree. But maybe they'll have a ceremonial opening and then have the big opening in the new year. But it's coming along great, and from the pictures I am seeing, it does look like they really did, you know, keep our design. Again, we weren't involved on the on-site art, art direction or anything, so you never know when you're not there. But this one looks like it's going to be pretty good. Nice. Excellent. And are there uh, any other like dream projects you're working on, or you know, like like if uh, I, I don't know a- anything you you would be particularly interested in doing? So, yeah, we're involved in a, a number of projects right now. Um, we're um, working on. Uh, let's see. I don't think I can talk about either of these. So <laughs> <laughs> we don't want you to get in trouble, but you know. <laughs> uh, but we've got a few new parks. One in. Uh, one in uh, Indonesia and one in, uh, uh, well, two or three in China. And all of them are actually pretty cool. And then we have a few other things that, that I would love to talk about, but I can't yet, but maybe in some future time I can when uh, we're no longer under an NDA. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'd love to have you back and hear about all this stuff because it's, it's just ama- amazing to me. Like, 
you know, obviously going to theme parks and stuff, it's like, oh yeah, you know, somebody plans this and you know, all that. But, but I, I don't know. It's just kind of weird. Like thinking like the whole process behind it and how it goes from like storyboards and whatnot, or, or like just a couple ideas into thousands of people walking through it every day, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's, uh, it's 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 always been fun. Challenging's always been uh, everything. Everything is a challenge because when, you know, unlike movies and Broadway, you know everything has to be safe. You have to you have to deal with exits and entrances and, and things that you don't have to worry about when you're doing a movie or a Broadway show. Um, so making these real time experiences uh, is challenging. But um, I think the fact that I've had experience with theater and film and 3D. And all these different things has, has helped a lot to be able to bring that kind of theatricality to the things that we do in parks. Excellent. And and again, the um, the name of our podcast is Everything I Learned from Movies. Um, do you have any lessons that you'd like to share with people that you've learned over the years, uh, just from your experiences, and uh, that, yeah, that you just like to share uh, with our listeners? Oh, well, yeah, of course, there's tons of things, but, um, and, and I would say we all learn a lot from the movies, that's for sure. Um, but uh, in the, each industry has, each one's a little different, but in the in the theme park industry, you want to have a, a really big opening that grabs people, and you want to have a great closing. And most theme parks don't realize this, because uh, you want people to leave excited and pumped up, either laughing or, or shouting or whatever, so... You know, how you open it and how you close it, whether it's a ride or whether it's a show or whether it's a 3D thing, whatever it is. And the other thing is, you know, we really try to uh, surprise people and shock people when we do things. We try to create attractions that play on everyone. We know now that when people go into attractions, we've known this now for the last 20 years, they know there's going to be a queue, they know there's going to be a pre-show. They're used to all this. So we try when we design these things to shake people up and surprise them and have things happen that they don't expect to happen during these different uh, phases that they're, that they're so used to. So I think the, the whatever you can do to excite people, whether it's a movie or a stage show or a theme park attraction, whatever you can do to shake people up and give them a surprise that shakes them out of their uh, complacency is really important. And all of the movies that you like and all of the shows you like invariably do that in one way or another. And uh, that's the thing you want to you want to be able to stand out in some in some way or other. Excellent, that's perfect. Yeah, uh, and Mr. Goddard, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so My much. Pleasure. Nice uh, meeting you both. Likewise, is there uh, any uh, social media or websites where we can follow the progress of you and your company? Or? Uh, yes, uh, there is a. Uh, I think we're on Facebook. But it's a new name now. The name is, because I'm turning it over more to the other guys, it's Legacy. L-E-G-A-C-Y, Legacy Entertainment, I believe. Uh, w, w, let me make sure I'm giving you the right thing. So it's www.legacyentertainment.com. Excellent. That'll have all the uh, the updates of upcoming openings. Uh, it sounds like all over Asia and the world. Um, uh, it should have, and then there's also uh, Facebook for the same thing, I believe. Under Legacy yes. Entertainment? Legacy Entertainment, yep. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we definitely want to have you back on when the, the new place is open, and uh, we'll definitely have to go check out Macau. I, I keep yeah. hearing great things about that place. <laughs> yeah, we will. Okay, fantastic. All right, 
excellent. It's been a pleasure speaking, Mr. Goddard. Uh, thank you, and have a wonderful evening. And uh, I'll keep you posted on when the uh, episode drops. Uh, it'll probably be um, about a month or so, sometime in October, if that's all right. Okay, sounds good. Just let me know. All right. Excellent. Thank you Excellent. so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time, and uh, thanks for uh, getting in touch with me. Absolutely, and uh, definitely keep us posted on this uh, Phoenix Rising when it comes yeah. back, because I've been waiting 30 years for that show to come back. <laughs> Absolutely, no problem. Steve is your biggest fan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks a lot, Steve. All right, have a good day, Mr. Thank Goddard. You. Take care. Bye-bye. Oh, my God. Sorry I was so quiet. I just, you were doing a great job, and he was telling his stories, and I was just, like, in awe. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, six-year-old Steve watching oh Captain Power and Masters of the Universe. And... What if I had told six-year-old Steve, you're going to get to, like, have a conversation with the guy who made this? Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, totally. Yeah. A- after talking to Sven Thorson, I mean, yeah, <laughs> just another Tuesday, right? No. Right? Yeah, but six-year-old Steve would have lost his shit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, what? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that uh, Mr. Goddard, uh, great interview. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean, just a visionary, I guess, when yeah. it comes to a lot of different so Steve, things. Steve, are we booking our tickets to Macau? Coming next week. No, I don't know. <laughs> Everything I learned from Macau. All right, guys, get on the Patreon so Steve and I can go to Macau and we can record episodes from there and tell you all about how cool it is. That's right. We'll send you all the pictures of uh, all the, the killer whales that apparently we can just about I swim know. with or I don't know, whatever you design know, it is. I'm not pro killer whales in captivity, but that sounds like if you've got to have killer whales in captivity, the way to go. I uh, would be interested in seeing that. I wonder if they're going to throw like seals in there and then they bat them back and forth. <gasps> oh my God, and... they can teach their young how to feed. <laughs> Ah, uh, nature. Uh, but yeah, and uh, if you haven't already, find Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future. I'm yes. not joking. It's act- It actually holds up. It's and, really fun. And it would be perfect nowadays with like the advances in technology. And... Dude, the kids could have an app. Yeah, that interacts with it. Yeah, yeah. Back in the day, like when when he was talking about that, I'm like, oh, the little ship laser gun yeah, things that I one of those. I'm, I'm not even sure how it really interacted, but uh, but it was still pretty cool. Yeah, uh, check it out. It's 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 unique, and uh, yeah. it needs to come back. I think. Yeah, it does. Was Fennel Thorson his tank? You, you know what? He could uh, be the commander now. Yeah, absolutely could be. <laughs> Ooh, and the original Captain Power comes back as his dad. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm digging this. Oh. Uh, but until next time, I'm Steve and I'm Izzy, and this is everything, everything I, learned I learned from movies. movies. Have a good night, everybody. Night, everybody. Power on. Captain Power and the soldiers of the future. Earth 2147. The legacy of the Metal Wars. When man fought machine and machines won. Biodreads. Monstrous creations that hunt down human survivors and digitize them. Volcania, center of the Bio-Dread Empire, stronghold and fortress of Lord Dread, feared ruler of this new order. But from the fires of the Metal Wars arose a new breed of warrior, born and trained to bring down Lord Dread and his Bio-Dread Empire. They were soldiers of the future, mankind's last hope. Their leader, Captain Jonathan Pollard, 
master of the incredible power suits which transform each soldier into a one-man attack force. Major Matthew Hawk Masterson, fighter in the sky. Lieutenant Michael Tank Ellis, ground assault unit. Sergeant Robert Scout Baker, espionage and communications. And Corporal Jennifer Pilot Chase, tactical systems expert. Together they form the most powerful fighting force in Earth's history. Their creed to protect all life. Their promise to end Lord Dredd's rule. Their name, Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future.